0: Football season is upon us, did you know that? In fact, we already don't cheer yet, you don't know where this is going. In fact, we already have upset number one in college football. Colorado beat Texas Christian. Don't ask me what happened, I have no idea. All I know is they did it. What we really know though, is that for the next four months, we get to hear about referees. That's what we really know about college football, professional football. So what do we do? That doesn't really matter for us. But but what about a coach? What, What happens with a coach or a player and they're now in these games and they dislike what a referee is doing? What are their choices? Their choices are to be angry at the referee, to tell the referee that they're angry at them, or to move on. And here's the question. Does their action change the authority of the referee? No matter what they do, do they get to unthrone, in a sense, the ref in that moment? Well, the answer is no. All of their ranting, and all of their anger, all of their antics, all it can do is change how the ref interacts with them And if you get angry at the referee, if you throw a fit, usually what happens is they make your life worse in the game. They're not going to give you calls. They're not going to give you breaks. They're going to look for ways to stick it to you in that sense. That's not exactly what goes on in this psalm, except for one element of that. In all of what we talk about, God is not changed by our perspective of him, but... What we receive from him is changed by our perspective of him. Ontologically, big picture wise, he is not different. He is the same. What we get as a result changes. This is our last week in the summer of Psalms. We're again looking at this God who relatively remains silent during all of this book. It's not about the actions of God, though it talks about the actions of God. It's not about the decrees of God, though it talks about the decrees of God versus other books where where that is just laid out. And so Psalm chapter two is about our, uh, the, the reality of God and his position and our interaction with his position. Psalm two. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The ultimate point of this psalm is that Christ, God in this sense, Yahweh, who we now understand to be more than just just Yahweh in the sense of God the Father, but we now know that He sent His Son, Jesus, who sent the Holy Spirit, and we talk about this triune God. This God holds a position. And when we fight against that position, we get one result. When we rest in that position and trust Him in that position, we get a different result. So the question becomes, which result do you want? That's the point of the psalm. You can either, as we get to the end, endure God's wrath, which you can't endure, but you can take, or you can take refuge in Him. Why? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? We're set up in this idea of something going on in the world, not just in Jerusalem, not just in the temple, not just in the hearts of God's people, but in the world. Now, keep in mind, most of the world today is not Christian in the sense that they've trusted Jesus and Jesus alone as their salvation. Much of the world is Christian in the sense that it's not Buddhist but it's not christian in the sense that we would talk about christian. Well, what about back here? Was much of the world followers of Yahweh? The answer was no. Not even close. We can go back through judges, Joshua where well, Joshua where they're going into the promised land, judges where we see the promised land raging around them, first and second Samuel, first and second kings and the chronicles where we see all of the world around Israel waging war against Israel. Much of the world, most of the world, did not trust Yahweh in any sense. They were scared of Him in moments, but they didn't trust Him. So why? Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? They're out there, they're doing all this, they're fighting against Israel, why? Why are they doing it? Israel was just a small country and yet everybody seemed to want to destroy it. Why? The kings in all the earth, or the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So, so you got this idea, this, this whole movement, and let's see what this is. You got the nations and then the people, you got the kings and then the rulers. So it's not just the plebeians of the earth, It's the hierarchy of the earth. It's not just the the hierarchy of the neighboring countries of Israel. It's the hierarchy of the earth as a whole. And we see that as we look through some of the Old Testament. We see Egypt and some of Africa seeking to destroy Israel. We see many of the kings coming from the east, a ways to the east or the north, seeking to destroy Israel. Why? Why is all this going on? What are they saying? What are they wanting? What are they trying to accomplish? Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. That seems like a really, really odd turn of phrase. So you got these nations and kings and they say, let's burst their cords. Who is their cords? It's important. It's really important to know the antecedent of a pronoun, which means the actual noun that a pronoun is referring to. So when it says, let us burst their cords, who is their That's the question. There is Israel as a representative of Yahweh. What these people are saying is, let us burst Yahweh's cords from us and his bonds from us. What does that mean? What does it mean that they're trying to burst uh, these cords of a God who's not even the God of their country over them? At this point, these people are trying to get away from what they know to be true. let's, Let's step away from Old Testament times for just a moment. We live in a society, a country who knows what is true. We have enough information, we have enough knowledge, we have access to scriptures in such a way as to know deep in who we are, what is right and what is wrong. Does our country follow that? No. We live in a country that wants to get away from the burden of following what God has said is right. They want to, in that sense, burst the cords of God's word on them. We function in a society that wants to get away from what God has called us to do. What does that tell us about this society? I mean, this is an interesting set of questions the psalmist is asking, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? It's not saying, why do the nations rage? Why are the kingdoms victor- victorious over God? It's saying, why are they plotting in a way that only brings their demise? It's in vain, it's pointless. You ever played a card game? Uh, there are times where I've played card games and, and I can hold a certain set of cards, uh, but it doesn't matter what cards I play, I'm still gonna lose right? I mean, there's, there's those moments. It's, it's in vain. I can just pull the top card and throw it out there. It doesn't matter. It can't change anything in the way the game is going to be played out. That's what they're doing here. These people are plotting in such a way as to all of the cards that they play are pointless. They're fools, right? They're, they're functioning in such a way as to say that God doesn't exist, so I'm going to make my own rules to what I'm doing. Well, Psalm 14.1 says this, the fool says in his heart, and this is of David, David's psalm, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's no one who does good, and that last phrase becomes really important as we build a theology around what it means for God to be good, but even the beginning just says, the fool says, there is no God. It's not the wise person who says that, not the intellectual person who says that, but the person whose heart says, I refuse to follow God, so my response is going to be that he doesn't exist. And then we find ourselves going down paths that are darker and darker and darker. Romans chapter one is all about that concept, and in Romans one verses twenty one and twenty two, it says, "For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became." Fools. But what happens in their mind? In their mind, they become wiser to, to assert that God doesn't exist. His rule is no longer important to people. In their minds, they become wise. They are smarter than everyone else. Smarter than God. But in reality, they have become fools. Why? Well, back to Psalm chapter 2. Not only do we have people who are pitting themselves against God, we have a God who responds to these people in this way. He who sits in heaven, this is God, right? God is the one who sits in heaven. He who sits in heaven laughs. He chuckles? No, he laughs at them. The Lord holds them in derision. The Tower of Babel. Interesting story, Genesis chapter 11, it's all about people saying, how can we as a united people become greater, stronger, more important than everything? Oh, oh, I know they say, let's build a tower that reaches all the way to heaven so that we can stand there and talk to God face to face. So they start building this tower, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Genesis chapter 11, verse 5, says this. Genesis chapter 11, verse 5. And the Lord came down to the city and to the tower which the children of men had built. So you've got this this setup where the people are building up and up and up to this tower that is great and strong and bigger than anyone had ever done. And God came down sort of like, oh, let's see what they're doing. That's the picture that's going on. All of what they're doing is like, it's like a three Lego block tower that my child built. That's what it's like. And when God laughs at them, and he is laughing at them, I don't mean that in the same way that we might laugh at somebody to try to be mean to them or devalue them because God doesn't devalue people, but he laughs at what they're doing because it's absolutely impossible for it to have any bearing on him. It cannot change him. He who sits in heaven laughs at all of the kings and all of the nations plot against him. Oh, let's, let's throw off his bonds. Let's not follow what he says is moral. Let's not follow what he says is right. Let's do our own thing because we're smart enough to figure this out. And God laughs at their foolishness. He holds them in derision. He's not pleased. Not pleased even a little bit. He who sits in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision and he says, he speaks in his wrath, and we're gonna talk about God's wrath. As we get into this next series on the attributes of God, we're going to talk about his wrath, but his wrath is always poured out on those who are in opposition to him, and it's always connected with his justice. So his fair playing with what we're doing, his honest interaction with us when we defy him requires his wrath and his punishment because that's the lot we've chosen. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me? So you're all doing all of this over here, trying to fight against me. You're setting up your kings and your kingdoms. You're doing all of your stuff. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So I've taken and I've put the one that I've chosen in position, You're all doing your thing. You think you're strong. You think you're mighty. You think you're doing something that's going to stop me. But I've already chosen what I'm going to do. And you can't stop it. As for me, I've set my king on Zion. I've set my king on my holy hill. If we go back to Job chapter 42... Job 42 is an incredible passage and we've talked about it many times and we'll continue to talk about it because of its impact on different passages that we see. Job was a righteous man, a good man. He loved God, he feared him and so God allowed Satan to destroy him in every way but taking his life and Satan did. He took his health, his kids, his wealth, And then he has friends who show up and they have a 40-ish chapter long conversation. And Job finally says to God, hey, I deserve an answer as to why this happened. I did nothing wrong, you owe me an answer. And so God shows up and he gives him an answer. And his answer is, I'm God, you're not. Here's what I can do, can you match that? And Job, far from being displeased with this answer, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's his response. He goes on to say, I spoke out of turn. I shouldn't have questioned you. I didn't know. I had heard of you, but I hadn't seen you. But here he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 Paul says that in him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of God, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So here we've got two different places talking about God's purpose, God's power, God's interaction with what's going on, and that he can't be thwarted. He will accomplish what he wants to. And when? Why does he choose to do it? When he chooses to do it, I have no idea. Actually, I do. It's just not a satisfying answer. He chooses to do it when he does it because that's what brings him the most honor. doesn't really give an answer as to why something isn't happening now other than right now is not the time that he would receive the most honor. But he works all things after the counsel of his will he accomplishes what he chooses to. He has set his king in Zion on a holy hill. He has chosen the anointed one. And who is that? It's twofold. It's Jesus, and it's the king of Israel. Most prophecies are fulfilled in an immediate sense and then wholly fulfilled in a later sense. And that's what we see here. This is a statement about the kingdom of Israel, but more than that about the kingdom of God as he promotes it forward. And we see that more and more and more. The kingdom of Israel was never going to take over the world. They weren't even trying to. But he says in Psalm chapter 2, he says that he will give him, he will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So that's what's going to happen. That's where this king is going to end up. Who is this king? Again, there is a a sense in which it's an immediate king of Israel, but that's only like a foreshadowing, maybe we could call it, of what it really means. It, It seems obvious who it is for those of us who have read the scriptures, who know it. And I don't mean that as a disparaging comment, but they wouldn't know much of the scriptures that we would know because they hadn't been written yet. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So who is the begotten of the Father? John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, or only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is about Jesus, the begotten of the Father. What does that mean? If God, in his attributes and in his character, is eternal, which he is, how could Jesus, if he's God, have been begotten? How could he have been created? And when we, when we equate the idea of created and the idea of begotten, we err. Begotten doesn't mean necessarily created. What's the picture here? The picture is one of position. And God says to his anointed one, here you are, today I have established you, made you, put you in place. Today, in that moment, in that time, Christ was put in the position to be king, put in the position to be ruler, put in the position to be savior to people, even though all of the people didn't understand that. They didn't understand what Christ was going to come for, even as they looked at the Messiah. Even as they tried to understand it, they didn't. And here we have the Messiah going to be there to do something, to be established into a position. That's what it means that he was begotten. His, his position of God the Son was put in place so that he could fulfill the position that only the Son of God could fulfill, which was what? Dying. Saving people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, his only begotten Son, that what? That whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Whoever does what? Believes. Believes what? Believes that Jesus Christ himself and only himself came to earth. Jesus Christ himself and only himself died for our sins. Jesus Christ himself and only himself came back to life. Jesus Christ himself and only himself is our avenue to forgiveness, our avenue to life. That is the anointed one. In Psalm 2, that is the one that the God who sits on his throne chooses to put in place to accomplish his will, his purpose. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Uh, you've heard that praise somewhere else or, or something similar. So God says to this anointed one, I'm going to give the whole world to you. If we fast forward to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew 4 starts out in a really interesting way, and I'd love to have this conversation with you at some point. And it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, or tested by the devil. It's the same word. We've talked about that. But God, through his spirit, chose to put Jesus in the most compromising position that he could. And in this time of fasting and exhaustion, and we've all been there at some point in time, where you're just exhausted. Sometimes it's because of your own foolish choices. And by your own foolish choices, what I mean is Brock made terrible choices and made himself exhausted. See, I thought I had a great plan. We were going to finish the summer of Psalms on Labor Day weekend, then we were going to move into a new series. And new series always take huge amounts of effort on my part because I, I front load a lot of my sermon prep. And God sort of chuckled at me and he's like, oh, here's an idea. How about in the middle of all that, you buy a new house? And you move into it on really short notice. All week, I have been exhausted because I had, we were were kicking off all of our stuff in a week. And so I couldn't just ignore things, even though I felt a little bit like I ignored everybody here for the week. I couldn't ignore my sermon because it actually is important that I work on it. I couldn't ignore the upcoming sermons or I'd have no idea where they're going. I couldn't ignore moving stuff into our house or we'd have nothing to sleep on. I couldn't ignore finishing projects and so I just kept adding things to my plate. I went to bed, Saturday or Friday night was the earliest night I went to bed until last night and that was one o'clock in the morning. I'm tired and that was my own choice. But Jesus was led into the wilderness to fast and be tempted or tested when he was at his most exhausted. And what did Satan say to him? Satan said to Jesus when he was at his most tired. It's verses eight and nine. It says, again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, Satan said to Jesus, all these kingdoms, all these nations I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Well, this is kind of silly because God already said he'd give them to him. And so now here's Satan saying, I know God in Psalm 2. He said he's going to give this to you and it's going to, he says he's going to make it happen, but I'll give them to you now. What was the temptation? What was the test? to Jesus. You can get them without death. You can get them without doing it the way God has told you to do it, the way you have chosen to do it. He says I'll give it to you now. You only have to do what? Defy God. All you have to do is not do it God's way. All you have to do is choose me over him and I'll give you everything that you think that you want. To which Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. And Jesus, in his authority, Satan leaves. Now, we don't have that same authority. We have that same spirit in us, but we don't have that same authority directly. But God says that he will give him the nations. And now he says, and he, says, he, he can break you like a potter breaks a, a vase. You ever broken a vase? You don't even have to be a potter to break a vase. Did you know that? I have broken vases. And I am not a potter. And they break really easy. And he'll smash it. Or he could smash us like that. That's what it says. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of Wisdom. So when he says serve him with fear, it doesn't mean the kind of fear that's, I'm afraid of this person. They're going to hurt me. They're mean. It's the kind of fear of a position. We recognize the power that God has, the position that he holds. And when he holds that position on his throne, whether we like it or not, we're in fear of that. And then he, <clears throat> excuse me, and then he finishes with this, kiss the sun Lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Hold on just a second. Psalm 86, verse 15. "But you, O God, are merciful, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger. How can he be slow to anger and then have his anger quickly kindled? Does that not not make sense? That's written in such a way that it it should cause us to wonder. It should cause us to question. It should cause us to think. Here's what it means. I know I haven't given you enough time to really think about it or ponder it, but here's the answer to what it means. God's anger is slow. Slow. It takes a long time to get going, but when he reaches the point where it's going to be doled out, it is immediate. He doesn't need to take his time. He already knows the answer, and he will hand out consequences, as in his justice he knows best. And his his anger is quickly kindled. You don't have time once you recognize his anger to say, oh God, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that, Lord. He has already chosen the path and you don't have time to respond. That's what it means for his anger to be quickly kindled, but it's slow in coming. We sometimes take that slowness in coming to mean that we always have a little bit more time later. We always have a little bit more time once we see something happening. We've got a little time to respond, and if we know we're wrong, then we can, we can step back into the right, and God will be like, okay, that's okay, I guess. But that's not how it works. When we choose defiance of God, when we choose to act as though he's not on his throne, then when his anger comes, it will hit us before we know we're, being, we're getting consequences. Even as His people, even as people who love Him and know Him, who have trusted Him, who, who have the Holy Spirit residing in us, we can still receive the consequences of the choices that we make. And sometimes those hit us before we know they're coming. So we'd be better off to be like a wise king and fear the Lord. Fear Him meaning we follow Him, we do what He says, not because we see the consequences coming, but because we know that there's consequences for what we do. We have two choices. We can either rest and take refuge in God, for that's how this ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Like being in a house. Have you been in a house when there's a storm going on? I hope you have. You have lots of refuge there, but what if you were to choose that you didn't want that roof to keep you dry? You wanted to do it your own way, and you run out into the parking lot or into the driveway or onto the road outside of your house. What do you get? You get wet right? If we choose not to see God as our refuge, our protector, the one over us, we run out from that. What we get as a result is we get whatever the consequences are. So be wise. Understand who he is and what he's doing. Understand that he's put his anointed one in a position to rule everything. Understand that he is the king who laughs at all of the world trying to take his place. Even all of the world acting together, he laughs at them because they have no ability to actually change the fact that he sits on the throne and no one can ever take it away. So we have two choices. We can trust that and find refuge, or we can defy it and find wrath. We would be wise to find refuge. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for allowing us to know you. Thank you for allowing us to to be here and worship, to have energy and life, to have a recognition of who you are, to have your scripture, to have people around us. God, we thank, you for, we thank you for your character. We thank you for the refuge that you promise us. We thank you for, even Lord, we thank you for the wrath that you say comes as a defiance of you, though we don't understand it. We love you. We trust you and we ask that you would be glorified in our hearts today. For it's in your holy name we pray, amen.